Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the broadcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary. I'm Scott Clark. Today, we're talking with David Hall, pastor of Midway Presbyterian Church, PCA, Powder Springs, Georgia. David is editor of a remarkable series of eight volumes, Calvin 500. Today, we're talking about the latest volume to appear, Tributes to John Calvin, a celebration of his quincentenary. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, David, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. We're talking today about tributes to John Calvin, a celebration of his quincentenary. And you edited this volume as part of the Calvin 500 series. It's published by PNR. I have it in my hot little hands. You can hear the pages here, and it was published in 2010. Just came out. Hot off the press. Hot off the press. This is one of a series of volumes. Tell us a little bit about the other volumes in this series before we get to this one. Sure. When we started off with the Calvin 500, which you, you quoted the subtitle, Quincentenary, and 500 is just a much more manageable term than quincentenary. And for your readers, uh, I, I know some of them think that's a car race. It's not. <clears throat> but uh, it is uh, a celebration of the birth and life of John Calvin. The first volume was uh, a small paperback volume, The Legacy of John Calvin, His Influence in the Modern, modern World. PNR released that in 2008. It's an overview and an introduction to Calvin. The second one is a more substantial book that Pete Lilback co-edited with me on a theological analysis of Calvin's Institutes. You have an article in there. Uh, a number of the Westminster faculty have articles in there. Mike Horton has one as well. I believe Bob Godfrey has one in that volume, the second volume as well. And it is designed to be a companion to any study of the Calvin's Institutes. Volume 3 uh, was a volume on Calvin in the Public Square, that I authored that is my work on Calvin and his disciples' political tradition. Uh, that was out 2009. And also, uh, Volume 4, I've lost one somewhere. Oh, Volume 4 was uh, a reprint of Fort Lewis Battle's work, The Spirituality of John Calvin. Volume 5 came out spring of this year. It's Calvin and Commerce, and it's a, a book that's co-authored by a colleague of mine, here in Georgia, Matt Burton, who's a financier and financial expert on the teachings of Calvin for the marketplace. And this one tributes to Volume 6. Volume 7 is also out. It's a small paperback volume uh, that is comprised of the sermons given in Geneva. There, there are 14 or 15 of the finest sermons you'd ever want to hear. And that book is now out from PNR. And the last one, Volume 8 in the series, comes out in August, and it's entitled Calvin and a worldview. All right. So this is a substantial series of works about Calvin, orienting people to Calvin's life, the implications of Calvin's social thought, Calvin's theology, uh, Calvin's institutes, his greatest work. And then this collection that we're talking about today is a collection of essays, tributes to John Calvin. Now, when people hear the word tributes, uh, they may think that this volume is sort of uncritical, laudatory praise of a hero, and uh, maybe they won't get much beyond that. So when you say tributes, what do you mean? Well, first of all, if, if a volume were written giving tributes to Calvin with unmitigated praise, that would be a unique volume. 
in this day and age. <clears throat> it might be refreshing for the readers to see, but this one uh, attempts uh, to assess Calvin from many different perspectives. We look at some of his historical setting. That's uh, the first part of the book. And then a number of scholars, Douglas Kelly, yourself, Tony Lane, uh, Mike Horton, and others address specific topics by Calvin. And then in the third part of that volume, we look at uh, Calvinism for today and tomorrow. And we have a very wide, diverse group of scholars. These lectures were originally presented in Geneva in July 2009 in the Auditoire. And we, we enjoyed that rich historical environment. And they're just wonderful, wonderful lectures uh, from different approaches, different denominational backgrounds, not all Americans, some Europeans. And um, Henri Blochet, for example, has a, a very interesting article on Calvin as the Frenchman. So we have uh, a number of contributors. Uh, one of, one of uh, the leading experts in liturgy, he was old, was a presenter. He was not able to be with us personally because of his health. And Terry Johnson presented his paper. So there's a there's a wonderful collection, and we're just uh, thankful for how fine a job PNR has done on this particular volume. We think it's a sturdy one that will hold up and appropriately commemorate the strengths and weaknesses of Calvinism. So it's a wide-ranging collection of essays, and I heard most of these papers when they were delivered in Geneva, and... Uh, I think I personally think the audience will be will be interested in this, but that raises the question: Who is the audience for this kind of a collection of essays? This uh, tributes volume in our eight volume series. Uh, we are trying to reach different audiences. Uh, for example, the first volume is a primer. The preaching volume will be for uh, an average intelligent audience. Two or three of the volumes are specifically targeted for scholars. This one and our commentary on Calvin's Institutes, as well as, if I can modestly say, Calvin in the Public Square, my volume, those are more interest uh, oriented towards scholars. But if any any reader wants to get a an introduction into the present state of Calvin studies, the Tributes volume that's just out is a, is a great introduction, and uh, it has so many topics and so many perspectives that most readers would find it well worth their time. There was a lot of literature that emerged in 2009 in celebration of Calvin's 500th birthday. And if you tried to keep on top of it conscientiously, it was a little overwhelming. How do people navigate this great body of literature that emerged in 2009? Well, they they could start. One of our chapters is by Rick Gamble. He did a, a bibliographical essay in this. That would be a place to Start. Of course, that's only through July of 2009. There have been a, a number of publications begun in 2007, 8, and 9 that are just now coming to the print world. But I, I would say that would be a good starting place to see that bibliography. I think Herman Zelderheis's contribution, his biography of Calvin uh, on, on Calvin as a Pilgrim, is a, a wonderful work that introduces people to many of the letters and other direct correspondence of Calvin. So you have that perspective in this. And we sought consciously to get a range of scholars, not all uh, from North America, but of course most were. And it, it is a challenge to try to keep up with that. Of course, the, the Meter Center in Grand Rapids annually publishes a Calvin bibliography in the Calvin Theological Journal. That's always a very, very helpful resource. Let's say that one is a ruling elder. 
so that your full-time vocation is perhaps working as a banker or perhaps you know working as a plumber and you have this nagging feeling that you should know more about Calvin but you don't where would you recommend that people should start to get to grips with John Calvin I guess I can only speak for the series that I've been working on for a while the two two volumes that I'd quickest recommend for that would be volume one, The Legacy of John Calvin, which is an overview. And I actually got the idea for that book from Joel Bells of World Magazine. And he said, David, you should put together something that lists the 10 ways that John Calvin changed the West. And in fact, I think that was an original subtitle. <clears throat> and it's a short, handy book, maybe 120 pages total. And that introduces someone to, to Calvin's finer points and then I think the the book Calvin and Commerce is a very helpful book, certainly for the banker, maybe not the plumber, but for anybody who lives in the United States as we watch over the last 24 months the unrolling of certain economic institutions and the, the changes in our society along with government initiatives. Uh, John Calvin had a lot to say on those matters, and most most of us believe that he, because he spoke from Scripture and because he articulated his positions from an eternal perspective, honoring God's truth, that he still has things to say. And indeed, our response to those volumes has confirmed that. So I would recommend those two, Calvin and Commerce or Calvin's uh, The Legacy of John Calvin. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California, and we're talking with the Reverend David Hall, editor of a series of eight volumes honoring John Calvin for his 500th Birthday. And particularly, we're talking about the volume Tributes to John Calvin, just out from PR and available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, WSCAL.edu. When we come back after this break, I've got a question for David, and that is when most Western people think about John Calvin, they don't think of him as a Protestant reformer, they don't think of him as someone who helped establish what came to be known as the Hospital of Europe. They think of him as a tyrant. We're going to ask David to address that question and to explain whether that perception is right or wrong. And we'll do so right after In this. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character, Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where, for 30 years, we've been fulfilling his vision of training men for ministry and preparing them to be expert in the Bible. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. David, when people think about John Calvin, and if they look him up on the internet, they just Google John Calvin, one of the first things that they will find is that he put to death a free-thinking, modern guy, Michael Servetus. And their investigation may end right there, because what do we have to learn from a religious zealot and tyrant who killed people who disagreed with him. If there's anything more antithetical to this age, it's that. How do you answer that? Well, 
the name Calvin, that's why in my earlier comment I said it would it would actually be refreshing to find a book of nothing but laudatory praise for Calvin. Interestingly, when he died and the circle of friendship and disciples he inspired, that was closer to the reaction than the vitriolic hatred we see today. Calvin as a name is probably, from my experience, in the top three or four uh, pejorative terms that we can use. If you want to, if you want to castigate your opponent in public dispute, disputes today, you you say he is a, a Hitler or a McCarthy or a Calvin, and and those are three of the most dreaded names to many modern thinkers. Unfortunately, that's by and large a lot of misrepresentation. My own uh, belief is that the reason Calvin gets such bad press is because at heart many people do not like his ideas and what he said. That's another debate that people can have and could, people of, of goodwill can disagree on. However, we set out to try to say, does this man still have a message for today? Does he still have thought that survives for centuries? And indeed, in the 20th century, in less than 100 years, we saw the Soviet communism from 1917 to 1989 not last an entire century Five centuries later, for some reason, people all over the world are still thinking that Calvin has something to say. And I think that the best answer to your question as to what did Calvin really do could be found, as historians would like to see, that is closest to the sources. And if we go back to Calvin's time, when he died, the entire city council adjourned for a short time and came to his bedside just before he passed away. There are reports by biographers that most of the city of Geneva wept. His friends continued to carry on his message. Actually, they accelerated his ideas. And it's a, a really troubling question to modernity to answer if Calvin was so evil and so hated and so tyrannical, why did he inspire such devotion, loyalty, and indeed a movement? And I think the answer to that is that indeed he did inspire those things. And by and large, since about 1800, most of our publications and commentaries and analyses of Calvin have been almost entirely negative. So in some ways, this uh, series by PNR reintroduces Calvin, elevates the discourse, and hopefully points people to some of the sources so that they can see for themselves. What I found is that John Calvin probably needs a PR agent today. <laughs> we, we would accept that task. Well, I was going to say, he has one. I think his name is David Hall, and, and he's in Powder Springs, Georgia. That's right. We'll try to rehabilitate his image. Uh, people may disagree with him. They may still despise him. They may reject his, his thoughts and ideas, but he actually made very significant contributions to our Western world, which our earlier forefathers understood, earlier historians, even if they didn't like Calvin, even if they loathed his predestinarian strains, uh, at least treated him more fairly. And now, a half a millennium after the fact, many people simply don't know that story. Just before we began talking, you were at the hospital making a pastoral call. Right. That's the reality of ministerial life. What's the value of knowing John Calvin for a pastor? Is it purely academic, or can a minister learn something about the pastoral ministry from knowing thinking about, reading about John Calvin? Well, yeah, for sure. Uh, if people limit their understanding of Calvinism only to his theological 
magnum opus at the institutes, they'll only get a very small sliver of Calvin's heartbeat. That's why I like the book by Herman Selderice uh, that shows more of the living relationships through Calvin's letters. Calvin also wrote commentaries, and as a pastor, it's ever so rare that I preach a sermon that I don't consult Calvin's commentary. And in that, I find wonderfully practical, excellent teaching, fine exegesis, uh, solid theological conclusions, all from the biblical text. So I, I've been I've been happy to tell people for three or four years now that the, one of the most abiding influences of Calvin is through his commentaries that are published, widely available, and every pastor should consult those, even if he doesn't agree with Calvin. So there, there, are, there are many different levels where Calvin's understanding of the church, the relationship of the church to the state, where the church must have the freedom to operate without state interference, that were absolutely groundbreaking at the time. And we are indebted to Calvin's contributions for those. Let me put you on the spot. If you had to name one thing about Calvin, one thing that you read in Calvin that influenced you personally— that affected you, that changed you, changed the way you conduct your ministry, what one thing would that be? What you, You're sitting there, you're in your study, you're reading something, and it just hits you like a ton of bricks. Well, I really, I need about 10 programs to say that, because I, I, I was not brought up in the Calvinistic tradition. I, I don't, neither my wife nor I either have any, any, any forebears who were Presbyterian or Calvinistic, so much of this over my lifetime has been new, and there have been so many things that have just been clear symbols going off. But but I'll tell you one that comes to mind that's recent. It's not the, the ultimate one, but it's just exemplary. When I was preaching through Ephesians a few years ago, in preparation for Calvin 500, I read Calvin's commentaries and sermons on the book of Ephesians, particularly at the end of chapter 5, where Calvin talks about male and female relationships within marriage. And again, to, to belie the notion that Calvin was a tyrant or an oppressive male who didn't understand females, I simply refer any readers to his sermons uh, on Ephesians to go back and see. I think Banner of Truth has released those to see how caring he is. Uh, of, of females. And one, one quote sticks out. He always said, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. On that verse, he commented, for we are heirs of eternal life together. And while he, I think, rightly interpreted and applied the scriptures, and while he warned females uh, not to shirk the role of submission, for that is a duty to God, he equally taught males not to shirk their responsibility to be tender and gentle and love their wives. So it's a striking, abrasing correction to what most people think of John Calvin. One of the themes on which you have focused most has been the theme of Calvin's civil engagement. We think of Calvin a little bit as a revolutionary in some respects, right. but much of what he wrote about relating to the civil authorities, was very conservative of the status quo in Book 4, Chapter 20 of the, of the Institutes. If he's a revolutionary, he's a very cautious revolutionary, and he himself practiced submission to civil authorities, even when he had serious disagreements with them. What can we learn from John Calvin about navigating a difficult 
cultural, social, and civil sphere. Here again, you won't be surprised, but this is where I think Calvin is of inestimable value for us today. He balanced the extremes, and you did, you've done, done well to cast him as a cautious revolutionary. You might even say a Calvinistic revolutionary, because over time, that was the same category. And Calvin saw a proper role for the civil government. He saw a proper role for the church government and a proper role for the family government. And he didn't confuse or blur the two. At his time, there were two extreme options that he avoided. On the right, the more traditionalist position was a long-standing tradition of hierarchy and monarchicalism. On the left were the enthusiastic Anabaptist, uh, who in Luther's time brought great embarrassment to the cause of the Reformation. And Calvin studiously sought to avoid either of those extremes. And that's why he created a doctrine, although I would, I would argue that actually his disciples created the doctrine. Calvin cast a few seeds in the ground. <clears throat> and his doctrine for resisting the government or dealing with it is very cautious, which is the word you've used. It's very measured. It seeks to use all legal measures available to citizens and seeks to appeal not, not to the individual to be a revolutionary, but to the intermediating magistrates, which for us in America would be our representatives and senators or other office holders. And so Calvin feared that the Reformation movement would become somehow associated with hot-headed Anabaptists from Munster as they were in, in Luther's time. And he continually, if anything, he went aired by going backwards a little bit too much, in my opinion, by warning his disciples, be cautious not to be revolutionary. So you're exactly right in what he says in the Institutes. Uh, and my, my thesis, in, in short, in the book Calvin in the Public Square, is that we, we can't accurately call Calvin the father of the American Revolution, but I would argue and have argued that his disciple, Theodore Beza, probably is the point guard or the father of the American Revolution. And that's, there's a, a, a very clear historical explanation for why that occurs. Calvin's comments you referred to in the Institutes were written in 1559. Already the threats of French and Roman Catholic oppression were rising among some of his uh, disciples in France. And even in Calvin's lifetime in his commentary to Daniel in 1562 or 63, just before his death, <clears throat> there are the seeds for resisting the government. But he didn't really develop that. He didn't draw that up. That was left to his disciples and when he died in 1564, still that doctrine of resistance, lawful resistance to the magistrate, wasn't formulated too clearly. It took a disastrous historical event, the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre in 1572, to call the disciples Theodore Beza and John Knox and others to mature their exegesis and indeed to depart in some way from the received tradition uh, of the Catholic Church. That's all technical. Just just to say, let me let me summarize it. That's all pretty technical, <clears throat> but but the, the situation is this: If Paul is to Timothy, Calvin was to Beza, and Beza ministered with Calvin for a, a good generation. They were very close, and Beza understood Calvinism. And I've tried to argue for some time now that if we want to most clearly understand Calvin, we probably should look to his disciples who worked with him the closest. Disciples can always misrepresent their master. And we as Christians are very guilty of that, I'm sad to say. <clears throat> but 
uh, I think Beza in this case understood the principles of Calvin on government, and he applied them correctly. And they were picked up all across Western democracies. And I, I dare say we probably wouldn't have had democracies spread throughout the West without the biblical basis and the exegetical basis provided from Calvin's death in 1564 through the early 17th century. For Calvin, we live in two worlds simultaneously. On the one hand, we live in this civil sphere, and we are to be fully engaged in it uh, under God's sovereignty. At the same time, we're citizens, he says, of another kingdom, an eternal kingdom, right? Civil kingdoms pass away, but this eternal kingdom, which is manifested in principally and represented by the visible institutional church, that never passes away. It's not the state that has the keys of the kingdom. It's the church that has the keys of the kingdom. As ministers and elders gather this summer to meet in general assemblies and in synods, what can they learn from John Calvin about doing their work in that eternal kingdom in the visible institutional church? My answer would be that we should remember how Calvin spent most of his time. He, he preached and he taught regularly in the church in Geneva. He started an academy and a seminary that groomed ministers for decades to come. And if the life and actual practice of John Calvin is instructive to us today, it would surely say that those who are ministers of the gospel should be very faithful in their prayer and preparation and preaching of the whole counsel of God. That is how the church changes. That is how we we speak to government. Uh, we don't speak to them by advocating for H.R. Bill 567 or for some particular legislation, uh, but we would do well to remember that it is our calling to feed our sheep and to teach our flocks and to instruct them in God's Word. God's Word far outlasts political parties and movements of any particular decade or generation. And so I, it, it seems to me that, that although many assemblies will be taking up commentaries on various pieces of legislation and social justice and various calls for international involvement, the Church of Christ is given a limited charter and a limited scope, and we would best stick to the knitting, as an old managed book once said. And perhaps uh, our ministers need to be reminded uh, that it is our task to hold forth God's Word. That changes minds. That forms consciences. That instructs ethics. That grounds eternal principles of government. We really do have a very fine architectural drawing in the Bible for what God intends the government to do and not to do. And it, it strikes me that it's still sufficient to call people back to those basic biblical principles and then remind them that they have to make their own judgments and applications of that. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. I'm Scott Clark, and we're talking to the Reverend David Hall, editor of a series of volumes, eight volumes, the eighth to be published uh, later this summer in August, in the Calvin 500 series. And these volumes are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. And particularly, we've been discussing uh, the volume just out, Tributes to John Calvin, a celebration of his quincentenary, edited by our friend David W. Hall. 
David, thank you so much for taking time out of your obviously very busy schedule to talk with us about this series and about this volume. Scott, thank you. It's been my pleasure, and we wish and pray for all God's blessings to remain on you and your your fine faculty out there, and you keep up the good work. That's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Clark. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. Thanks to Young Me for graphics and Adam Klaus for technical assistance. You can hear all the previous episodes of Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash office hours. Click on Office Hours under Westminster Audio. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to Office Hours in iTunes or at wscal.edu slash office hours. Write us at officehours at wscal.edu. Call us at 760-278-1725. Leave a message and we may use it in a future broadcast. For more information about Office Hours or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.